0: Welcome back, everybody, to the Arts Fuse podcast. This is Lucas Spiro, joined today, as almost always, with Matt Hansen. Say hello, everybody, to Matt Hansen. Hello, all. Hello. And we're also joined today uh, by the Arts Fuse editor in chief, Bill Marks, who is a frequent guest on the program. And today we're going to be speaking with David Miller uh, from Zeitgeist Stage Company, who is sadly uh, shutting its doors after 18 years of producing challenging theater in the Boston area. Zeitgeist Stage aims to explore contemporary plays and rediscover historic works that reflect the mixture of comedy and drama inherent in contemporary life. Zeitgeist seeks to establish a creative environment that allows theater artists to demonstrate their talents through timely and relevant productions and to foster a connection with our audiences and the community at large. David Miller is the director and founding artistic director of Zeitgeist Stage Company and he's directed over 40 shows for the company including uh, award-winning productions of Blue Orange, Stuff Happens, The Kentucky Cycle, and Spring Awakening. Recent productions of Punk Rock, The Normal Heart were each named for two separate uh, top 10 Boston theater lists, and The Normal Heart won two 2014 Norton Awards and four Ernie's in 2014 as well. David, thanks very much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So today is uh, a little bit of a sad occasion.
1: It's melancholy. Melancholy, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: And Bill wanted to bring you on uh, today to talk about the challenges that small middle-sized uh, theater companies have in the Boston theater scene. Uh, Bill has written um, a number of commentaries and essays that you can find on the Arts Views about the difficulties of theater, about funding, about who pulls the strings, about the roles of the critics, and uh, I think Bill has a number of questions to ask you about that. Uh,
2: I do. Um, well, let me just ask, just right off the bat, why are, why are you closing your doors now, you know, after so many years of doing theater? Um, It was a practical financial matter.
1: We just in the last two and a half years have not been able to sell tickets at all. I mean, single-digit houses with award-winning productions and uh frankly, I attribute it to Trump fatigue. Um, because a lot of our works have, you know, a political commentary or we did the play exit strategy be out of school closing. Um, that was, you know, well-regarded and, uh, you know, more people on stage than in the house. And so it's just with everything that's going on and the bombardment from, you know, it's it's like a two-hour news cycle nowadays with um, everything coming at you. I think people are looking for other alternatives for entertainment, you know, thought-provoking. You get that every day from CNN. You just want to escape, you know, that's why. The the big sellers right now are Aquaman and Mary Poppins Returns because they're otherworldly. So it's just been very challenging for us financially and not really having much outside funding. We rely very heavily on ticket sales. And it just, uh, after two and a half years of that, it kind of faced the music and said, okay, it's, uh, it's time to go. You know, I
2: don't want to sacrifice my retirement to keep a theater company going, so... So we're going to retire. First, let me ask a little bit about outside money. Um, Why is it that you were never able to receive outside money as as a theater group? There are certainly a number of of theater companies in the area that routinely receive money from the Boston Foundation and other, Barr Foundation being another, you know, in which they receive funds. Why did you, if you're doing relevant work, why did you never receive any support?
1: We have received support from the Bolster, Boston Cultural Council. Every year they have um, grants for theater, movies, and so forth, up to $5,000. And for the last five or six years, we have routinely gotten about $4,000. So they've been very kind to us. So we have received funding from that. We do get outside donations. Um, we have one a very supportive client who gives us like $2000 a year. So we do get um that and we have an ongoing campaign where we have envelopes in the program and for some shows if they have an impact we get a lot of donations from that. The Bar Foundation the they had um a grant that they didn't solicit proposals for they just gave out. And if you look at the top 10 it's the Huntington Theater Company the ART and there was nobody smaller than I think Speakeasy, um, and I'm like, the Huntington and the ART, you know, they get a million dollars. It's a drop in the bucket. I mean, you give up me ten thousand dollars, you know, that's you know, half the budget for half the year. So, um, and the Boston Foundation for a while was kind of closed to funding for theater groups. Uh, they had somewhere it was all allocated. I didn't know behind the scenes, but then. They opened it up to, to this uh, this new initiative, and so they've been giving uh, money for new works over the last three years, and um, we applied all three years and just didn't get any. And each year, there was something. The first year, I didn't have any video, and so they said they couldn't see the quality of the work we had done. The second year, I had video, and I also proposed an original play, Um, and they said they didn't think we could pull it off in the time they allocated. But we went ahead with the commission for what became Trigger Warning, and then I applied again this year, and I just heard that we didn't make this second round. And I think that may be because we're closing. I had to be upfront and say it is going to be our last production, but we could certainly use some extra funds to uh, get it off the ground. So it's just... um, very challenging a lot of grant makers don't want to take a risk on a small theater company thinking it's not going to have the impact uh, that it may have and indeed some of our productions have had i feel but
2: it's always a challenge well i mean i think it's a challenge but also it's something that i've heard from other theater companies medium and small that the money goes to the money. In other words, rich companies are getting enormous amount of money. Well, the smaller companies, as you say, ten thousand dollars could mean an enormous amount to you and be nothing to the Huntington and the ART. Um, they're not receiving those. They're not receiving those funds. So I agree, it's about impact, but it also seems to me it's about you know that you have rich people who are on the boards of the ART and the Huntington. They hang out together, they know each other, and the money's simply going into that sort of closed into that closed loop.
1: Yes. And I, um, there was a a day long seminar for um, artists in Boston and uh, the folks, uh, development people from uh, Shakespeare Project were there. And so she was talking about grants and everything. And she said, you know, and if you're getting in a tight, kite crunch, you know, go to that donor that's always ready to give $5,000 and prep him that you may need money coming in. And I'm like, how do I find those donors that are always ready for $5,000? You know, I'm lucky, you know. So the envelope program for us has been very successful. The things that have touched my heart the most are uh, we have the envelopes, you mm-hmm. know, and I do. You've heard the pre-show speech, you know, uh, and people on the way out who put in like 10 or 20 bucks in the envelope, don't even write their name and hand it to the stage manager. It's it's kind of their way of saying this was worth more than what you charged me, you know, keep up the good work. And, and, you know, when I come in and I get them, I kind of like, okay, (laughs) it helps you go on, you know, and comments from that. But, um, yeah, it's, it's very discouraging sometimes that, uh, that the money goes to the money, you know, and, you know, pages and pages of donors and, um, and, you know, you kind of scrape by to get a thousand or 500 or, you know, last year when I turned 60, you know, I had a Facebook. You can send monies to a nonprofit. I sent them to Zeitgeist Stage. And that actually got a lot of leverage. So you do everything you can at this level. And plus, you know, you, you're you you're working to keep budget small and um, try and do
2: quality work within uh, tight parameters. And uh, in terms of uh, your programming, for example, it seems to me if money's going to money, then the money is going to do productions at the Huntington and the ART and elsewhere that are escapist. As you're saying, if the idea is that theater now is being, because of Trump fatigue, is becoming less and less relevant and it's becoming more and more dedicated to escapism, then basically the foundation money that you're talking about and the money from you know the Mass Cultural Council is essentially not going to hard-hitting work because you're telling me that there's no audience, there doesn't seem to be much of an audience for it. Um, but instead it's going to work, which is essentially going to be escapist or more, you know, I mean, you know, I don't want to see Mary Poppins Returns, but in that mode. Well, if if you look at the programming,
1: um, there's a lot of what was on Broadway, Tony Award winning, Pulitzer Prize winning, and it's actually like a food fight for that, and I can usually predict half of next season in Boston based on what was last season in New York, um, you know, and and that's okay because um, it gets some some of that work, you know, is very well noteworthy. You know, like you know sweat um, about the, uh, the the strikes in in Pennsylvania um, got very good reviews uh, in New York, but it's it's. A lot of rehash. There's not a lot of support for new works unless your musicals at the Arty with external producers' funding money, you know, as a pre-Broadway stop. Um, But the the middle and lower, um, we're we're doing lesser-known plays by lesser-known playwrights out of necessity. Two shows this season. I tried for for as long as two and a half years ago, and. They went to the bigger theaters because that's the way the system works. The They're going for the maximum uh, return for the playwright in royalties. And so smaller theaters lose out. So, um, But we can still do worthwhile work when nobody wants to do it. Like when I got Stuff Happens. Stuff Happens was about the Bush-Blair alliance leading up to the Iraqi war. And we did it in the uh, second uh, term, midterm elections of George W. Bush. Um, and the press was all about how, uh, the Mark Taper Forum in LA and the uh, public theater in New York had done it. And the only theater company in Boston willing to do it was doing it in a 90 seat theater because it was political. And David Hare said in the interview, you know, American theaters are afraid of political theater. And I think part of that was true. I felt lucky to get it. It was our one sold out hit from the get-go because i sacrificed my first born male child for that interview with david hare <laughs> um and it was on the globe cover with a color picture of our cast the sunday before we entered uh before we opened and um monday we sold 100 tickets five is a big day for us okay mm-hmm. 100 the next day like 120 i said oh my god something's up and it was The entire run sold out and people came to me and said, thank you for doing this play. Because the play was 60% actual speeches and then 40% what Hare imagined happened behind the scenes, both in Britain with Tony Blair and here with Bush and the whole cabinet. And um, people wanted to understand that. Um, And it was also during the run, Rumsfeld resigned. And I wrote to Hare, and he gave me permission to Adeline because it was very narrated about this happened and this happened. And the day we put it in, it was like this day, Donald Rumsfeld designed the holiday and applauded, and they kept applauding. Um, so, and, and that's what I mean by Trump fatigue. At that point, people were embracing it to understand what was happening. Now people are just like, enough already.
3: I don't want to deal with this anymore.
1: Right. I mean, and uh, my partner's gone off social media because he can't stand all the political stuff. I have a hard time with the news now because every, you know, episode with, you know, every clip of Trump just angers and infuriates me. And so I even have a hard time with the Stephen Colbert and Seth Meyers bits, which are brilliant, but they show enough of me to aggravate me, you know? So um, it's it's a very different time
3: you feel like it's showing too much it's showing enough of what's going on that that enough to drive you nuts
1: to really frustrate me in in the process that no republicans are like standing up the only ones who stood up were those that were not running for re-election and like mitch mcconnell has been awol about this shutdown you know where's the leadership but the um right Uh,
2: They stand
3: up to the extent that they can do so without having to actually pay any price. I'm
2: going to push back a little bit, not so much on the Trump fatigue, which I agree, right, it's there, but there's more to politics than Trump. I mean, the problem with the whole MSNBC, you know, sort of Trump-omania. Uh, revolt, which is going on in Fox and elsewhere, everywhere, is that it's purely focused on Trump. And there is climate. You know, I can go through all the different issues that are outside of Trump, both internationally and in terms of climate change. So to me, the challenge would be for theaters to create understanding and deal with political issues that go beyond or ignore some of the the Trump fatigue, rather than just simply I, going for escapism. One of
0: the issues, though, is that I think a lot of Anything that becomes anything that's seen as political is, I think, then by the the, the critics and the, the media universe, they're always going to frame it in terms of the current administration or it seems, that seems to be the case where uh, if we're talking about climate change, we seem to forget that, you know one of the major components from the previous administration was selling fossil fuels to developing countries around the world and so we compare that to what we think is now the ultimate evil when it comes to climate change but it's not actually the case and so well, that,
2: that would be my point though I mean yeah. theater should be able to create that you know look at that larger context right. and take us outside of just pressing our nose up against Trump and everything that Trump is doing right. Trump is a symptomatic right a lot of a lot of other things and it seems to me that this is I mean it seems this is where I think Theaters are afraid to go there. And instead of going and offering an alternative to the sort of Trumpomania that we're currently trapped in, they're just simply opting for, you know, as you say, commercial, musical, escapist entertainment.
0: Early on in the, in the Trump situation, though, uh, Zeitgeist produced Vacunia, which is a, a play about a tailor who is the personal tailor to a reality TV star, sort of blowhard who ends up becoming the front-runner in a presidential nomination. So uh, is there... A, and, and Zeitgeist, of course, obviously means like some sort of uh, spirit of the times and reflection of the times. And you you we're talking both about how your theater company responds to, reacts to, reflects on uh, what's going on sort of in the moment as well as historically. But the, the other sort of abstraction that I think I want to draw here and bring it back to another point uh, about an, a barrier to entry is how uh, our politics are determined by who has the money to run you know, that you've heard, everybody's heard about the phone test or the Rolodex test, which says open up your phone and tell me all the people you can call right now to, to get you, you know, $100,000. And if you can't do that, both main political parties say you're not worth our time. You know, it's, it's, it's very similar to the way that it seems that plays go, uh, get on here in, in the Boston area and, and elsewhere. Um, you've been screwed out of plays by big theater companies before. You know, you've, you've gotten the rights to put something on. And then a big theater company comes along and says, no, we actually want to do this play now because they see, even if it's political or if it's edgy or if it's biting or if it's it's, uh, uh, challenging theater, which we get less and less of these days, they sometimes see the profit motive in challenging theater. So if there's a profit motive in challenging theater, does it make it less challenging or does it make it less impactful?
1: And actually, uh, I have a really painful story about that I there was a play that i saw and read about and had the script and i actually got the rights cast it was ready and then they pulled the rights because they were going to put out a national tour so if there's a national tour coming anywhere close to your city they suspend the rights so okay so then i I was tracking it and the tour ended and i kept going after it i mean every other week uh you know i was on a first name basis with uh the guy in dramatist play service head of professional rights finally he says okay yes you're gonna get it again i get it again and then a month later a larger theater applied for it even though i had the rights i had a signed contract i'd send in money and uh they were buying part of the national tour scenery and they're bigger and so they got preference and you know, I even met with the artistic director and, you know, it was just so th- that that w- that happened within the last six months. And that was just really frustrating. And there's two other shows this season that are at the midsize theaters that I had seen and gone
2: after and, and didn't get. So um, can it's you tell tough. us which which shows those are? No, no. <laughs> I was, well, yeah, you, you mentioned media. So let's go to the media and you talk about the Globe and stuff happens. Um, to me, you know, their, their theater coverage, was, which was never particularly expansive, has continually shrunk from, let's say, the 80s till now, where there are fewer features and f- less writing about small theaters like yours or medium-sized theaters. Um, right now, my understanding is that there are no freelance theater critics to go to um, sh- the kind of productions that you do. They have one critic and that's it. And so if the critic can make your show, then you get a review. If not, you know, in the old days, you might have gotten a feature. If not a review, now you don't even get a feature. So how important has that been in terms of, uh, you know, your your closing? Um, has, you know, B-U-R or G-B-H stepped into the breach left by the Globe in terms of theater coverage? Because theaters are actually multiplying. We have more theaters than ever before, but we seem to have less serious coverage. Oh, we absolutely have
1: less serious coverage. I mean, when I started... There was the Globe The Herald were doing dailies, the phoenix Bay windows, South End news uh were doing weeklies. Uh, Joyce was still occasionally on the air um and um Jared uh has an impossible job, but he he's come to a number of our shows um but one thing that happened was a year ago we were doing um a play that just escapes me. <laughs> um it's about a, a muslim convert a girl teenage girl mm-hmm. who is a convert and she's gets arrested on her way to syria and they prosecute her for you know being a traitor and the district attorney assigns a muslim woman as the chief prosecutor uh, i'm sorry it?
2: faceless faceless thank yeah, you yeah right i i reviewed it actually for the, the archives yeah yeah um
1: which that was very political, and I, you know, uh, well done. I mean, it got earning awards and Norton nominations, etc. But um, the Globe critic was sick, and I'm like, so I contacted the editor. Are you gonna send anybody? Um, and they just wavered. And then I heard from someone that they're, you know, not sending freelancers out anymore, uh, unless you're Moulin Rouge, right? Um, and so when when I was closing, I mentioned that and the uh, arts editor denied it. So there, but not getting reviewed for that show really hurt us because I think if we had, I think the review would have been positive and I think it would have sparked interest, you know, but uh, when, when the, the press coverage when you're small is important because. Our advertising budget, you know, is what you pay for parking in the South End. I mean, it's, it's it's non-existent. We can't place, you know, face ads or any of those kind of things. So you do rely a lot on that and also on your uh, constituency. But to get that extra bump uh, from reviews, and it really has mattered. I mean, I can tie that. Um, one time, uh, the Metro ad, ran the last Friday of the run but that Saturday night like 10 tickets were from the metro review which is just from the day before Mm -hmm. it has an impact especially when um you you don't have the base and a lot of people are just relying on outside impact so uh it, it it can be frustrating uh it can be rewarding though I mean um so the arteries uh been pretty um depend pretty dependable on coming out and reviewing and reviewing as soon as possible. Um, Jared uh, has to cover everything, uh, you know, orchestras, museums, dance, whatever, but he's, he's come quite often to us, so uh, we're grateful for that. But um, the, the loss of the Metro, they were small reviews, compact, but they had an impact because it's free. People would read it and then toss it, but remember it. Um, and the loss of, uh, You know, that the Herald not doing reviews is also kind of, they're kind of in a weird state, but in general, they don't do them anymore. So it it is uh, a loss of of communication to a broader audience, um, and, you know, God bless the bloggers and everything, but it doesn't quite fill the gap, especially when it comes to uh, smaller theater
2: groups. Well, I was going to ask about technology because that was what was a selling point a few years ago. Well, don't worry. Even if the big mainstream media is going under, there are fewer people reading the globe. Uh, we've got technology now. You've got social media. You're going to have a Facebook page. You're going to send out Twitter. That's, you're going to create a community, and out of this community, you will be able to generate attention and sell tickets now my from what I've heard from a number of theaters they're telling they're saying that like anything else, it's money talks on technology. If you have the people who can send tweets you know every other hour, if you could have someone who's sending out emails every hour, if you're having someone who essentially has a staff which is just about social media, which tends to be the big players then you will you'll be able to reap those rewards. but if you're a smaller company the promise of technology in terms of selling tickets or getting out attention has not lived up to the promise. Would you agree with that or? Oh, absolutely. Um, Also, you know, social
1: media, you have to first attract them before your social media can impact. You have to get the followers so that you can then put out content that might particularly uh, attract them. And so a lot of them are going to the bigger players, but not necessarily the small players but um the small theater alliance of boston retweets everything from every small company which and they're gaining a little traction which is good but uh the, the content you know I, you know we don't have interviews with broadway stars or people coming in to attract people you know and our <laughs> rehearsal photos are are sad to say the least i mean cuz we're rehearsing in, in God knows where. So um, it's, it is. it uh, is. It Plus, also, a lot of theater ticket buyers, you know, okay, there's a lot of complaints that theater prices are too high for millennials, et cetera. So you get in that hole, and millennials are driving the social media. So do they have money for theater? But we have pay what you can Wednesday, every Wednesday, $10 minimum. So, you know, that's as cheap as a movie. So... Um but it's like who who are the theater ticket buyers, and how are they finding out about it and the what social media might reach may not be your ticket buyers so i th- I think it's not uh necessarily for us. I mean I post every review and theater profiles on our Facebook, you know one of our board members handles Twitter and Instagram. So we're out there, but you you need more than that. It's just it's just not enough. You need you need content to push on social media and people are looking for like reviews. Yeah, I'm happy to post reviews, but you know, sometimes people see a review from a blogger and they're like, eh, blogger. You know, you know, kind of disregarded as not being mainstream enough, even though it's supposed to be social media, though, the wind beneath our wings,
2: but. How important or how difficult, let's say, has the growth and the number of Boston theater companies been in terms of why you're ending Zeitgeist now? Is it that there are just so many more companies that there, than there were before? And given the rise in competition from cable TV, you know, the, there's a, you know, you can stay home and it's easy to watch a, a you know, a film on Netflix. And you have people with bigger and bigger televisions, right? So it's like looking at their own little mini movie screen in their in their home or their apartment. Um, I mean, do you see that as being part of it as well? Just simply the the number of choices are multiplying, so it's harder to it's harder to survive. Yeah, that's certainly a
1: factor, and certainly at the small and medium level. So, and you know what your content is, you know. Speakeasy seemed to have a big hit with Fun Home, Tony Award winner. Uh, It was here on tour, but they brought it back and seemed to be very successful. But again, musical and um, about, you know, a very touching subject. But yes, we're kind of saturated with entertainment options across the board. So sometimes, you know, (laughs) the prospect of getting up, going out, finding parking in the South End, going to live theater um is, eating out at yeah times. and you know it's it's it, it's it can be a lot and people are like oh, forget about it but uh one thing that happened uh, we did love valor compassion which was you know on broadway some 24 years ago or something and um made
3: a movie out of it too i think right yeah yeah with yeah. jason alexander was like his big yeah. like, dramatic breakthrough role yeah.
1: except it was nathan lane's part and <laughs> Nathan Lane wasn't available. They the rest of the original cast. Anyway, a lot of people came up to me after the show and said we saw it in New York and thought this was so much better. And I'm like, I don't think you know my cast was better than Tony Award winners like Nathan Lane. And but if you're in the second balcony on Broadway versus in the fifth row in my theater, uh, Brooks played the twin part and has this absolute breakdown scene, and he's a foot from you and my friend was sitting there she goes i i could barely take it you know and she wasn't there that because she was my friend she it was a testament to brooks's performance and it's just everything's a lot more immediate the same thing happened when we did bent a lot of people said to me oh god i saw it in new york this was so much more powerful i'm like yes because the immediacy of the black box is 90 seats the Plaza's, you know, 145 or 150. So um, that's the kind of experience you can't necessarily get from Netflix and chill, you know.
3: Totally. And that, that's an interesting thing, too, about the proximity between you and, and the entertainment, right? Like as Bill's saying, it's your own home theater. It's a big screen. It's the thing you're getting from your streaming device. And so you're kind of detached from it in a certain way. It's something you've chosen and you're consuming and you just kind of sit back. And I've definitely done this. Like you sit and then you watch one and then it's done. And then they're like, next episode coming up in five, four, three, two, okay. And then you watch four or five episodes. You binge watch a TV show or you watch like two or three movies in a row, something like that. Versus theater, which is totally ephemeral, but that makes it more uh, visceral because you're sharing that moment with actual people in an actual space. And the closer you are to that, the more intimate you are with that, with that scene. R- versus seeing it on TV, which we all know is, is a whole different. That's interesting. A lot of actors I've heard have said, you know, like, you're a Hollywood star. Why would you go back to the theater? And they're like, it's so much more, like, powerful for me as an actor because the crowd's into it. And, like, you're doing it in real time.
1: The other thing is uh, we perform a lot in the black box. And my favorite setup there is kind of audience on two sides with the short length. And um, we did a play called The Big Meal, which was, like, uh, five or six generations of a family – Um, Through the course of their lives, all around uh, restaurant tables or or meals. And like the 20-year-olds become the 40-year-olds become the 60-year-olds. And the 40-year-olds are their children and grandchildren and everything. And it was a really challenging script. The script was landscape, all characters on every page, and uh, lines, no punctuation, and no just placement. And there was a lot of overlapping dialogue. I felt I was, you know, conducting the Boston Pops. It was all about you need to come in a beat senior and you need to hear this, you know. <clears throat> and it was all technical all the way through it because it was just it was a challenge and you know we all sucked it up and the audience was on two sides on both sides of the table so like a real real dining experience you never don't see everybody but you're seeing, you know, reactions and opening night like on the far side The whole front row was ugly crying because they'd been through this whole family and now from 20 to 60, and he died and she's left alone in the nursing home. And they're ugly crying Mm -hmm. and they come out of the theater going, I'm I'm calling my grandmother, you know. And but also (laughs) the audience on one side is impacted by the other audience as much by the performance, right? And and that's also kind of A communal experience that you get in the theater that you don't get, you know, alone or even in a movie. I mean, in a movie, how often do you see people clap? I mean, once in a while, but not very often. It's, oh, it's over, you know, Mm. Aquaman safe or whatever. (laughs) Um, But uh, the experience of that and then the curtain call and that play, we got a lot of standing ovations on the fringe. If you get a standing ovation, you earned it. Mm, it's definitely. not gratuitous, like at the Huntington A R T. They're standing up because oh god, I paid so much for this ticket. Oh, no, it's
0: a formality most of the time when <laughs> yeah. you go to the theater these days. No,
1: yeah, they yeah. Yeah. You pay that kind Concerts, of money. Right, and then yeah. you're going
2: to stand up. You know,
1: right?
0: <laughs>
2: and
3: they think they're being classy. Right. We
2: earn our standing ovations. I, I want to bring up come. that idea of community, though, because I, you know, I've talked a little bit about the foundations. We've talked a little bit about the media. How I mean, what I've heard is that the idea of Boston theater community is a bit of an oxymoron. That in although there's talk of some sort of community, people working together through State Source or through you know through other groups of theaters, that essentially that is a bit of a, a bit of a lie. That basically it's a dog-eat-dog, very competitive uh, scene here, and that instead of you know State Source or other groups helping companies like yours you know, grow and develop and support them, they tend to leave you, you know, on your own, right? To either sink or swim. I mean, is is that, I mean, could there be an improvement? Is that true about what's going on in the Boston theater community? Are there community organizations that actually are helpful or are they just simply there to collect dues or to be there and maybe to serve the bigger companies or are they actually helpful?
1: There's a small theater Alliance of Boston stab, which, uh, runs a website and does postings and and they're worthwhile in ter- in terms of their they have marketing arms that are helpful they they publish a newsletter every week and announce openings and it's it's all it's all focused on small theaters and so they've had some benefit um state source is necessary because it's basically how you get people to audition it's the the one source for auditions, and you know, I post an audition on Stage Source, and if there's a twenty-year-old woman, you know, an hour afterwards, I have a hundred, you know, audition appointment requests. So that's helpful. There's some interplay. It depends on the company and the people involved. You know, I have you know, horror stories. I was in rehearsal for a production and this company lost an actor who broke a leg on opening night on the on the set and so ironically uh yeah <laughs> and uh and so i actually rearranged my rehearsal schedule to allow him to rehearse with them so that he could step in about a year later i had someone who was cast in a production and i wanted him for my show performance dates weren't conflicts but they would have had to reschedule one or two of the rehearsals and they wouldn't do it for me i'm like after what i did for you forget it
0: so with the theater community there's there's no shortage of eager young actors who have talent ambition there's no shortage of playwrights out there no shortage of companies and small companies it seems in small theaters in in the area so there's only a manufactured scarcity to sort of funnel all of the attention into a few very small sort of pockets And the other part of the community, if I can quote Bill Marks from one of his essays uh, on the arts views, American theaters cultivate, quote, communities by tailoring productions to generally satisfy the demands of political and spiritual of middle to upper class white liberal audiences. Just how are these spectators, groomed to be passive, hailed for their advanced degrees in empathy, going to push stage companies out of their ruts, speak meaningful uh, and speak meaningful conversations? So how much can we blame the audience is kind of like what i'm asking here as well to what degree are are we failing the theater community who is actually out there trying and and, and sacrificing a lot personally financially you know reputationally to to bring us theater that is meaningful and sparks meaningful conversations
1: uh well that's a interesting I, question yeah and I I, I, I I mean yeah i mean I, please I s-
0: everybody go see his play <laughs>
1: i certainly don't propose to have the answer to all of theater if i did i'd be a millionaire producer on broadway and not closing down a fringe theater company so um one of the things is um to support theater to go especially you know broadway's more than just hamilton you know to uh try smaller uh theater companies it doesn't take a huge investment, you know, because we're talking, you know, $25, $30 tickets, not $120 tickets. And so uh, you'll see some bad theater. God, I've, you know, but I've seen some bad theater at large, you know, theaters as well, um, where people are standing up and I'm like, what are you thinking? You know, kind of thing. So, um, but to support those, the one thing you said, uh, you know, there, there are a lot of playwrights out there um however it is challenging to find a good play well constructed about serious subject matter that interests and in that is well constructed and in interests you and has a message but doesn't hit you over the head with it you know i read over 100 plays a year and there's a lot of okay but kind of plays and the ones that kind of bubble to the top are the one you know, you do see them in New York, you do see them win awards, and that's why there's a food fight over them, because they've kind of bubbled to the top. I read lesser-known plays by lesser-known playwrights. I've had some successes with those, some not-so-successes, so.
0: Is there any play that you've read recently that you know should have been put on somewhere and didn't by an unknown for reasons that were other than... Um, for, for reasons that were just you know purely business, or
1: um, no, um, so like there was this one play that I read, um, and it was basically it was set in uh, a third world country, and basically the family was supported in you know nice condo, running water, you know, financed, and the basic uh, relationship was that the whole extended family was there for body parts should the first world people need it and then in the second act they need it and so it's calling in for a kidney or an eyeball or something and
0: kind of the premise to get out
1: yeah and i remember reading this play and going wow it, it was really powerful and then i'm like who but me is going to come see this play. Well, we saw
0: Get Out get a lot of yeah. fanfare in the theaters and right. I know it's, it's it's done as a as a horror movie mm-hmm. uh we, but you know it's it's the same thing, you know. There's uh, a bunch of uh very wealthy uh suburban uh, white people uh, who um are uh sort of zombifying. zombifying and, and I, and I, I, would,
2: I my argument would sort of be that that would be why you would want to do the play in the fringe theater. I mean, if yeah. you think mm-hmm. I'm the only one that in the world that would this is really powerful. I really like this. Right then, that this is why I think Broadway is so poisonous. I mean, it, it seeps into every as it seems to have seeped into every aspect of, of you know the play production now and theater production now where even fr, you know, even a fringe company like yours is if you really like something and you think it's radical and it's powerful, then do it. Right. I mean, the problem with Broadway of course, and the poison of it is that it's all geared towards, you know, I mean, is this going to work with a crowd? Is this going to be able to pull in enough money? Is this going to be inspiring empathetic up enough or, you know, to leave the audience coming out and feeling that they've, you know, they've gotten a great artistic experience so the fringe is the whole the whole idea of the fringe is to offer that sort of an alternative, right? Not to be uncommercial, to be non-commercial, right? I mean, that's why you're there. The other challenge, though, is um, casting.
1: For us, we can't bring in anybody we want. You know, we're we're paying our two hundred and fifty dollars stipend, you know, which is basically cab fare, and it's actually the very first play you came to see it was in the blood with a. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know black and latino cast and that was really hard and um some were good some some were okay um but especially if a lot of plays i read um i'm like okay will i be able to cast this and when we did the kuna i spent months outreaching to every middle eastern organization in the greater boston area because I needed Middle Eastern actors. And um, I got got some people of color, but, you know, one blogger complained they're not the right color. And literally wrote, it it should be easy to find Middle Eastern actors. I'm like, tell me where, because I just spent three months, and this is what I got. So um, when when you're small, casting is also a challenge. I've been very fortunate, but if you're uh, end... Going back 18 years, it was like impossible. Company One has helped pave the way because they're a very diverse company and they've opened up doors. And so now I get actors of color, even if actors of color aren't particularly requested. And that's great for me because I've done colorblind casting for, for 20 years. So, um, But it's, it is. It's it's a challenge, but you can't... If you put on a play and no one comes, it's, is it a play? If you don't have an audience, that's a challenge. And, um, for example, last February for Steve, uh, we had um, one performance where the only people came were two subscribers, and they could come back later. And that's the first time in 19 years I've canceled Mm. a performance due to the lack of attendance. And um, that really broke my heart.
2: To me, that raises Lucas's question actually what you asked well where have where have the audiences failed Mm -hmm. you know and to me audiences have we've some somehow it's symbiotic right theaters that fail have not cultivated the audience and the audience has not had the curiosity to be able to see new shows and to see things that are challenging well why would you do something where you know where no one chose but if you're a theater company that's known for doing edgy interesting right, fringy work, right, that's going to be, then it's, is is it true that there just simply is no audience for that kind of theater? I don't believe that. I think that there will be millennials and there will be people who will be interested in things that they can't necessarily see on Netflix and they can't necessarily see in their local cinemas or or at the A or G or at the Huntington, that they know what that stuff is and they want an alternative. So, that, that's why, and to go back to what Lucas is saying, I think that somehow there's some sort of a disconnect between what you're doing, right, which is valuable, and an audience which I think would appreciate it. And somehow you're not discovering one another or they're not being cultivated by our culture or by our universities. We're a university town, and I've always been just going on on, my, on one of my rants. You know, To me, a university town, you would imagine would have theater students students in cultural students in poetry english and whatever they would want to see something that is a little different right that they would be the generation the people that would want to see fringe theater and not want to go to see you know the latest ver- you know the latest parody of hamilton right um why where are they why have they you know why have they not been discovered and that
1: was <clears throat> our challenge through our whole Run. I mean, in the beginning, you know, uh, we would have successful shows like we'd open and then the reviews would come out and the second weekend would be sparse. Third weekend would be more. By the fourth weekend, we're selling out. But we never found a way to channel that into we'll come next time right away. You know, you've seen our work. We do good work. Just take a chance on it. Granted, my program can be pretty pretty eclectic, but just take a chance on it. And even, you know, when we did Stuff Happens and it was sold out run, you know, I I don't have the numbers, but a lot of those people were one offs and didn't come back. And we spent a lot of time trying to sort out how to have them come back. Not very successfully. The other thing about a college town, though, uh, one year. I was a judge for Emerson College, the Evies, the awards they give out for theater and everything. And um, so that meant going to see productions. And every weekend at Emerson, I could see three or four shows. And when I went to shows, it was full of other Emerson College students. You could see theater four or five nights a week at Emerson free with your ID card without leaving the campus. And you're doing that because they're all your friends. So, a lot of the colleges have an internal culture, Mm -hmm. so they're not definitely not. So, I actually stopped. You know, I used to market to them and, you know, put posters up, pay to put posters up, and I'm like, not anymore. It's not Mm -hmm. getting any returns. So, um, Hmm. so it's a weird kind of college town at times.
0: I don't know if you're familiar with the play, um, Evening at the Talk House by Wallace Shawn.
1: Um, no, but I. I hate Wallace Shawn. So. Ah, well, then I. I... <clears throat> no, I, I just, uh, he, his acting just makes my blood boil.
0: Well, that that's fine. It, this this is, a play, that, <laughs> this is a play that he wrote. I happen to think it's um uh, uh if not a, a great play, I think it's um relevant for the conversation because it's the play that doesn't leave you th- leaving the you don't leave the theater feeling good. Uh, I don't even know if inspiring is the right word uh it's it's a play that that is challenging because it it calls into question every single one of our assumptions and doesn't give us an answer about what to do next when it comes to literal atrocities that are carried out in the name of basically our freedoms and our and and our uh, our our national interest and um it was recently turned into a uh, a radio play and so this question is not about the the play by Wallace Shawn the question is about what do you see next for yourself in theater how do you see the things that we've been talking about in terms of where's the audience, how are people consuming media, uh, is, is turning things into radio plays or is uh, doing versions of them that, you know, I mean, y- there's commercials now where you have people sitting, you know, courtside at Lakers games with virtual reality goggles on, you know, it, does it matter? You, you ask the question, if the audience isn't there, is it a play? You know, do, do we do we see the situation where, you know, you've got the actors on a stage in a black box that has nobody in it? But there are a hundred people in a hundred different countries with virtual reality goggles on watching the play. You know, does, is that the same thing? Is it different? I mean, is, it, is, is there a future for theater in, in this very alienated way? Because even the podcast itself is, I think, a, a reaction to a culture of alienation. You know, we, we listen to it alone. We do it when we're doing other things, when we're distracted or to distract ourselves from, you know, the kind of life that we're living. Uh, and it's the place where we get the kind of things that we say is tailored to our own individual needs. Um, is Is there a future for theater as theater in the in the forms of new media that we do consume now, or is that community that important? Everybody
1: in the room i I think theater has to be responsive to technology. Um, you see a lot of integration of video in contemporary plays, um, musicals, whatever. And the theater as an institution has been around for thousands and thousands of years, going back to the Greeks. There's a reason for that. And so I think there's still a benefit of people coming together to experience it together. You know, because if even if you have two actors in a black box and 10 audience members, it's a play. You know, and it's theater and it resonates, for me, it resonates more live than it does in movies or TV. But I think the theater has to respond to technology advances. If virtual reality becomes, you know, a new, I would rather watch that Lakers game live than with the virtual reality goggles. That's just me. But You want to feel
0: the the sweat, you know, flying off (laughs) off the plate.
1: Right. But like... I f- I feel myself turning old as we go. Like I'm like, am I ever getting in a self driving car? I don't know, you know, kind of thing. Um, but so I think that there will always, as as technology advances and new forms of you know media you can immerse yourself in, I think that that is along with you know television and. You know, it's like theater used to be the popular art form, then it became movies. You know, before movies existed, then it became television, and now it may become something else, as as the world progresses. But also, you know, opera used to be, you know, well live music, music, yeah, m- as well. Then opera, and then pop music. So it's continue grows and develops, but there still is opera being done. There still is classical concerts and there's still, you know, going to be the Greeks and Shakespeare being done. But, um, I think it's going to evolve in ways that, you know, I'm not smart enough to foresee, but I, I think there will be, uh, a a quest. There's going to be kids out there doing plays in the backyard who are going to grow up to be people like me.
0: (laughs) And what about for you personally? What's next?
1: Um, Trigger warning. Tell us, play, tell us about Trigger Warning. Um Trigger Warning is uh a play I commissioned from the playwright Jacques Lamar when I was looking to apply to the Boston Foundation for original play. Um we met and discussed a number of topics uh and the one we kind of settled on he uh he wrote one a woman show uh, I loved I lost I made spaghetti which Stoneham did last year for Greater Boston Stage Company. Um and it's about a woman telling about, uh, based on a memoir, based on telling about all her loves and losses while she makes a three-course spaghetti dinner, including making the pasta and cooking it. And he also did uh, a number of other shows. And he's been writing for Varla Jean Merman for about 12 years. He had read the um, one of the Columbine Mothers shooters, had written a memoir about the impact on the family. And he had approached her about turning it into a show. She said, absolutely not. She wanted no parts of that. But um, he then, uh, what he thought was to work on a show about a school shooting from the perspective of the shooter's family and uh, what it has to them, how they're ostracized by the community they live in. Um, so it's it's that play, um, what they could have done uh, to prevent it, um, the the background is the kid had mental health issues and they tried everything and nothing seemed to work um and he shoots his own sister um in the leg and then she becomes a never again spoke person which gives the family all kinds of legal troubles because the people that were affected by are suing them and so forth so it's um, it, it it looks at um the a school shooting from a different angle namely the Shooters' family originally, we titled it "Thoughts and Prayers," but that seemed just a little too passive. And he, he went, he went to something, and the woman said, "Oh, I should have given a trigger warning." And he said there was nothing about it, but he liked the title "Trigger Warning."
2: So we um, we went
1: from "Thoughts and Prayers" to "Trigger Warning."
2: In a way, I just want to say how representative do you see the ending of Zeitgeist being for the you know, for the Boston theater community? I mean, do you see yourself as a bit of a canary in the mine shaft? I mean, the fact that you can no longer continue doing what you're doing, it's a French theater, doing theater that is relevant and that is political or that is a little different. Do you see this as being symptomatic of a, what may be a slow, you know, I mean, you know, the evolution or, you know, a sort of a, you know, I mean, does this say something about for the future? Is is this the end of a very good theater company? Or is this the, are you in a sense by ending this theater saying something a little bit more broadly or symptomatic about what's happening to theater in Boston? I can't
1: really s- say a lot about that. And I mean, I don't know what it means for the Boston theater community. But what I just know is that it was appropriate for us to end now. I mean, just financially um it was getting harder and harder. And so um it just seemed like the appropriate time. Um I think it's it's challenging. Um I think there are there are folks out there doing it um and you know seemingly doing it well. But uh one time I think it was um um Oscar Eustace that I heard him speak one time and and he said something about the the theater companies theater companies will come and go you know and when your time comes you'll know it and so it just seemed like okay it it does seem the appropriate time plus you know i'm also and fringe theater is a young man's game i'm sorry you gotta have youthful energy to do this and um I, i i don't have that anymore so um i you know applaud you know people like apollinaire that they do very challenging works year after year um fresh ink hub theater company you know so there's still folks out there doing it uh fighting the good fight i think and uh some of them doing excellent work so you know i think hope that people would embrace those companies and the work that they do and in doing so provide opportunities for companies to select more challenging works but you know in the last couple of years I did come to well do I think this is going to sell or not and that kind of put me in a tenuous position that I hadn't been in previously so it was uh, It's it's been evolving over the years learned a lot and um, you know if anybody wants to start a theater company Take me out for coffee. Or drinks. Better yet. <laughs> I have a lot to share.
0: Uh David Miller is the founding artistic director of Zeitgeist Stage Company. Uh, he's directed over 40 shows for the company, a number of award-winning plays in the Boston area for uh the guts of uh nearly two decades. Uh the final play that Zeitgeist will be putting on is coming out this spring called Trigger Warning. You can catch it April 12th through May 4th at the Plaza Black Box Theater. Uh, at the Boston Center for the Arts in Boston's South End, written by Jacques Lamar. You can find out more information about the play at the Boston Center for the Arts or at Zeitgeystage.com. David, thanks so much for being with us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: And uh that does this for us uh this week. Uh thanks so much for joining us. And for the Arts Views, this I'm Lucas Spiro. I'm Matt Hansen, and I'm Bill Malarks. Thanks. <laughs>